Hello and welcome to the Sifted podcast, recorded at Dream Factory, the content creation house for startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's sparkling tech and startup sector. And every week on this podcast, we talk about the stories our journalists have been writing about. And we talk about what's been going on inside the Sifted newsroom as well. This week, we're going to be talking about some of the biggest news of the week, including some hot tidbits about welders. Never thought you'd hear that on the Sifted podcast. And we're going to be talking about UK Neobank Starling's latest earnings and how it's hit profitability on an annual basis for the first time ever. And finally, we're going to be speaking to our future of work reporter, Miriam Partington, about the cost of living crisis in Europe and how startup employees are actually having to use their work perks to help pay their bills. But before we get into that juicy stuff, and the stuff about the work perks is pretty ridiculous, what has been going on at Sifted, Eleanor? So this week has been pretty funny because we haven't had an office, we're in between offices. And you may have heard, a heatwave gripped Europe, including London, so we all frazzled in our unair-conditioned flats. No, but the greatest thing was that a bunch of us from the editorial team went to a very nice air-conditioned co-working space and worked together. And even better was that one of our best team members, a chihuahua named Noodles, also joined us. Productivity levels were subpar. We had to get an ice cream mid-afternoon to keep us up going. When I say we had to, I had to take the team out for ice cream because I love ice cream. Those were the highlights. One more thing to add would be that we are running a listener survey for the podcast. The link to the survey is in the description of the podcast, wherever you're listening from. I know that we have some true fans out there. Heard from a listener recently that he likes to listen to our podcast while in the shower. Interesting. So let's talk about the proper news. Because it's been a little bit less than positive recently, let's start with some good news that Eleanor has been learning about this morning, up very early, 8am, on an earnings call to hear how Starling Bank, one of the UK's foremost digital banks, is doing. And what's what's the headline, Eleanor? Yeah, so Starling has posted its first annual profits on a surge in revenues through the end of March of this year. It's due a lot to loan growth in its portfolio. Everyone was kind of expecting this. So the bank actually first broke even on a monthly basis in October 2020 and has been very much signaling to the market for a long time that it probably was going to be profitable for the year through the end of March. Yeah, so revenues are up 93% aren't they? And one factor that's led to the big growth in its loan book in recent years is that Starling was one of the banks that the UK government chose to give out loans to small businesses during the pandemic to help them through, which has massively increased its loan book. It's interesting. People have expressed some concern and also criticism at Starling Bank for the fact that the COVID loans do you know, they are a significant size of the loan book if you look at the money. Although it was interesting on the earnings call today, their CFO was talking about the fact that because interest rates on those loans are so low, it's not a significant driver of revenue for the bank. And And, and does that criticism come because people think it's not 
good for the bank to be charging these small businesses high interest or is it more that it was a kind of one-off customer acquisition and it's not a regular returning thing in the future potentially? So the concern and the criticism is more due to some concerns about both fraud and then also defaults on those kinds of loans, right? And during the call this morning, Anne Bowden, Starling's CEO, specifically said, you know, I'm not going to talk about definite numbers for Starling because there's going to be a report that the government will probably put out soon with numbers for the entire thing. But she did say that everyone that's participated in this scheme has seen default levels, which were much lower than the levels that they were expecting, which were about 30 to 60 percent. Interesting. And what was Anne like on the call? Oh my gosh, the call started at 8am. I was a little bit sleepy and she was so bubbly and talking about how much she loved talking about Starling. Oh my gosh, I wish I had that kind of energy in the morning or maybe any time in the day. And she's made some tough decisions this week, hasn't she? She announced earlier this week that Starling is not going to be pursuing its European banking license anymore. Yeah, so Starling was basically in the final stages of a process to get a banking license in Ireland. And of course, Ireland is part of the EU, so that would have given it access to the EU market. And instead of going through with that, Bowdoin decided that the bank should stop that process and that they should focus more on selling their banking software as a service, which they do through their subsidiary called Engine. And she very much framed this as a very strategic decision to go for the global market, because obviously they can sell that banking software to any bank or financial institution in the world, versus just going, Ireland is like not a super major market, right? The other thing that she did say that was very interesting was she said, if there was a bank in Europe with a banking license in Europe that came up for sale and Starling could use that to launch in Europe and get that banking license in Europe. They would think about that, but that bank would have to be in a country that was significantly bigger than Ireland. Very interesting. And then yesterday, we also got the maybe slightly surprising news that Maria Raga, who has been the CEO of Depop, the secondhand fashion app, which is very, very popular with Gen Z, is stepping down as CEO after eight years at the helm. She's not actually the founder of Depop, but she joined the company very, very early on and, you know, has played a massive role in its success. She said in a post on LinkedIn, I've made the almost impossible decision to step down as CEO in order to take a break and spend more time with my family. For context, Depop got bought by Etsy, the marketplace, for $1.6 billion in June last year. So, Eleanor, do you think this is actually that much of a surprise? I mean, it's not too much of a surprise if you think that we are a little over one year on from the acquisition. And a lot of times with acquisitions, you'll see the former CEO or the leader of the organization step away just because obviously like it's under the management of of a new company. And so sometimes it's hard to find a spot in that new thing. And also it's a different stage of growth for that business. And so it makes sense that there is kind of like a changing of the guard, but not really sure if that plays a role in this one because she has stayed on for a year after the acquisition was announced. Yeah, I my bets are on Maria Raga becoming a VC next. I reckon there are loads of European firms who are desperately hunting for female partners, especially female partners with strong operational experience. And from what I've seen, I've met her a few times and seen from the sidelines, she she ticks a big box there. So let's see if my prediction is Interesting right. Interesting prediction. Okay, I like it. 
And now for a little bit more about the e-commerce space. We had a story this week about more layoffs. Obviously, this has been a huge theme for the tech industry over the past couple of months as companies are finding it harder to raise more capital and they're also bracing themselves for a potential economic downturn. And this week, our reporter Freya Prati reported that Amazon aggregator SellerX, based in Europe, they've raised $750 million from investors like BlackRock and Sofina. They employ around 700 people. They have laid off 28 employees. So I'm sure everyone here is familiar with these Amazon aggregators. They were big recipients of VC cash over the past two or so years. Remember in the pandemic when all of the office workers, tech workers, were just sitting at home during the lockdown, during the pandemic, ordering things on Amazon? e-commerce spiked. And this spurred the creation of a whole new category of companies, which are basically companies that go and buy all of these different brands that are already selling on Amazon or places like Etsy, other e-commerce platforms, and roll them up, make the brands even better, help them with marketing. And of course, those brands get the benefits of being part of a bigger company. And this was a classic VC hype sector, right? There were loads of competitors suddenly springing up, a lot in London, a lot in Berlin, a lot in the US. And they were all, as far as we could tell, not that differentiated and all raising a lot of money, weren't they? Yeah, they're going through some tough times right now. So this follows some other industry layoffs, for example, at American startup Thrasio, which is kind of the poster child of the industry of these Amazon roll-up, Amazon aggregator companies and a forerunner of the industry. And that company laid off 20% of its staff in May. So I think it'll be really interesting to see, especially if consumer spending were to really fall and there were to be less demand for e-commerce in general, what that would mean for these companies. And now for something completely different, something summary themed, we're heading to Spain and the small Andalusian town of Huelva. What's going on there, Eleanor? So this week, a Welvan headquartered startup got a little bit of funding. But the interesting part about it is that this company called Seaberry is very unique, I would say. They're a startup that is creating augmented reality technology to teach welders how to do their jobs. So what does that look like? I'm, I'm a trainee welder and I put this headset on and then what happens? So you put the AR welding mask on, um, that's hooked up to a computer, and you have a mock welding gun, and then you practice doing welds on 3D printed plastic surfaces, which appear on the goggle screen as metal joins, and the welding gun gives you haptic feedback, so it feels like you're actually doing the thing, which makes it as realistic as possible. And you might ask, why do we need this? Why do we need AR for welders? It turns out that if you want to become a welder, you need to practice and you need to practice on actual metal up until now because there wasn't this technology, which means that we waste a lot of metal that can't actually be reused after the training. And Seabury says that since 2010, when it was founded and launched this technology, it has helped save an entire Golden Gate Bridge's worth of metal. Cool. And how, how many welders are there in the world? How big is this industry? It's not one that I've ever given much thought to, I must admit. Yeah, so in the United States, it's estimated that there are about 400,000 people that work in welding. And by the end of 2024, 
we're supposed to have a shortage that's just as much as that. So we're supposed to, in the U.S. alone, be lacking 400,000 welders, right? According to the American Welding Society, which I think is the favorite society that I've heard about this week. Sick. We're going into the deep stuff on Sifted. Um, And there's basically a shortage of welders in every country, says the founder of Seabury. And Seabury says that it's contributing to reducing that shortage by using technology and also by just making training fun, right, to appeal to other groups of people who might not necessarily have thought about a career in welding in the past, such as women or younger people. So yeah, it might sound super, super niche to us, but I feel like there are these very untapped industries that have just been not touched by technology yet. I was talking to a founder this week about construction and he was building like a recruitment platform in construction and he was just telling me about how no one in the tech community has thought about building products and services for these industries that seem very old and kind of dinosaur-esque, but actually mean big bucks. And so Seabury's plans next are to expand in the Asia-Pacific region. And here's another fun fact for you, if you haven't already had enough fun facts about welders. There are 4 million welders in China alone, according to Seabury. And then what else it's going to do, it's got other ideas up its sleeves. It might make industrial spray paint training, augmented reality courses. And this is the best one of all, a crime scene in investigation virtual reality training program, which is actually already being trialled by Spain's police force. I mean, this sounds amazing. I think they could also just launch games that people like me I mean, I was just play for to like, learn how to do this stuff. For our next editorial offsite, we should just have an AR training yeah. in forensic investigation. Yeah, we need to ask Tim Smith, who wrote the story, to hook us up with Seabury so we can get this going on. Love it. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the cost of living crisis. We're joined by our Germany and future of work correspondent, Miriam Partington, about a short story she had out this week about how startup employees are using their work perks in new, slightly depressing ways. Miriam, tell us about the story. Yeah, so we actually received some data from a company called Juno in the UK, which offers flexible benefits. And that's when a company offers its employees basically like a lump sum and then they can choose which benefits they want so it could be anything like fruit and vegetable boxes to fitness classes to mental health whatever you fancy basically but they sent us some data and it showed that there was a great increase in how many people are using these benefits to cover the cost of living so it could be you know household items or food and groceries utilities that kind of thing which obviously shows that everybody's kind of feeling the crunch of inflation at the moment. And it's not really a positive sign that people are now having to chip into their company benefits packages in order to cover cost of living. But why don't companies just raise salaries? I think this is kind of a massive debate at the moment in the tech world. There's lots of companies, particularly early stage companies that may not have much cash behind them that just can't afford it. And also some companies or most companies, in fact, actually only do salary increases once or twice a year. So operationally, I think this can be quite complex to just say, okay, we're going to add five or 10% onto everybody's salary right at this point. I think as well, even for well-funded companies, you know, we've seen the mass layoffs in Europe from companies that we thought were pretty well-funded, maybe had a lot of runway. But I think everybody's just focusing on keeping things 
slim at the moment. And unfortunately, in these circumstances, companies say, well, we've got to focus on keeping ourselves alive rather than raising everybody's salaries to market rates. So what can founders and operators and management teams actually do to help their employees? I think flexible work is a huge one because if you can work from home, then you don't have to have commuting costs. You don't have to buy expensive lunches, etc. Some companies like WeFox, for example, which is a digital insurance company in Berlin, they've been offering employees 50 euros towards electricity costs because actually the Financial Times reported that this month electricity in Europe hit the highest on record so far in terms of price. And then also in terms of food vouchers, lots of companies are now offering a little bit towards lunches or breakfasts or even towards their weekly shop. And other companies are also introducing commission structures to basically help share success with employees. So there's this company called Employee, for example, which I interviewed for the piece. And they've introduced what they call like a team commission pot, where a proportion of every sale and customer renewal they get goes to a fund which is shared by everyone and not just the sales team. So that's just another nice gesture and a thank you to the team for delivering good results. So Miriam, does this actually amount to anything if we're facing such a huge cost of living crisis? You talked about electricity prices being at their peak. Yeah, I mean, of course, on paper, maybe 50 euros a month towards electricity bills or a percentage towards your weekly shop. Maybe that seems like a drop in the ocean compared to what people are actually trying to cover right now and and afford. But I think it's still good for companies to make this gesture and be aware that this is something that is you know, globally impacting people and will have an effect on employees, mental health, motivation, etc. So I think if companies can show willing and they can make a gesture, then that is still meaningful. So Miriam, what are you looking to cover next? Or like, what kind of themes are you interested in as the cost of living crisis develops? I'm finding companies that are trying to assist employees in different ways, maybe financially, like financial tooling is quite interesting. So companies like WageStream, for example, in the UK, they actually have a platform where employees can access a portion of their salary whenever they want. So instead of having to wait for payday every month, they can always be assured that there's like a pot of money that they can dip into whenever. So anything about financial tooling, I think is quite interesting. We're seeing as well in Europe how buy now, pay later is being used increasingly as a form of credit, which is also not an incredibly positive sign. I think anything in that arena is quite interesting. Super interesting. Thanks so much for joining us, Miriam. This episode of The Sifted Podcast was recorded in Dream Factory, a content creation house for startups based in Shoreditch. They very kindly offered Sifted readers a discount code, which gives you £300 off the £3,000 yearly membership. All you need to do is quote Sifted300 when you book a tour or apply for membership. And if you want to hear more about what's going on in the world of European tech and startups, find our coverage on sifted.eu. Don't forget to do the listener survey. Please, please, please tell us what you think and you can win a month of free Sifted membership. And you can find all of the articles that we discussed in this episode in the podcast description alongside the link to that listener survey. And we would very, very much like to see you at our two-day in-person event in London in October, the Sifted Summit, where we have some really top speakers like Hiroki, the founder of Go Cardless, a very, very well-respected CEO in London's fintech scene. Roxanne Faza, who's the boss of Station F, the mega startup campus in France, which is actually 
literally hot intel. I met her the other day thinking about where in the world it might expand to next. Watch this space. And let us know what you think of our podcast or anything that Sifted is working on on Twitter. Or you can email us at hello at sifted.eu. Looking forward to seeing... I don't... We don't see them. That's weird. Can't wait to return to this hot booth next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. You can tell the heat has made us deranged.